Hello and welcome to the complete Elaine May. This is the supplemental episode we've decided, not not episode uh, five. We we did Elaine May's true features, the, all four of them, and uh, we're here to talk about uh, the last movie that she's made to date, uh, which is an episode of American Masters for PBS uh, that is a little under an hour on her former partner, Mike Nichols. And we are uh, also going to talk a little bit just about her career and uh, some other things that she's done and is doing and uh, sum up uh, the all-too-short season that we've uh, gone through here. Uh, in case you were wondering, I am uh, Matt Gasteyer, and I am here with uh, my co-host, Travis Trudell. Hello, Travis. Hey, how's it going? It's going all right. It's a bittersweet, right? I mean, uh, this was uh, this was a lot of fun to do, but it was... Um, it would be nice if we had another uh, year and a half of making our way through this catalog. It it really would be, and I hope, I hope you know we we broke our rule. We kind of have a a bit of a rule of uh, only choose directors who have a definite catalog and is final. And I really hope that that is not true. I hope we uh, by doing this show we break the curse and Elaine May uh, makes makes some more films. I think she. She has a unique and fantastic voice, and uh, I think right now in this time and place and all the buzz about her um, and her movies and the retrospectives that are going on, I hope that we get to have a, a supplemental episode where we get to talk about one more movie she made. I really really hope that's the way this goes. That would be swell. And, and since we started recording this, um, there are more, more signs of uh, activity from her than there have been in recent years, although she did appear in the, the terrible Woody Allen uh, Amazon miniseries uh, a couple of years ago. But um, she has since, since we started recording this, um, premiered on Broadway, where she'll be uh, running for another couple months uh, in the, the lead role of a Kenneth Lonergan play which is getting rave reviews, and she um, also had one of her films announced by Criterion, and uh, the transfer was supervised by her, which is nice to see. She's at least engaging with her work in some uh, some respects, at least. Um, and so ideally, those interactions, both with the public and with people who are making movies, uh, will get her re-energized to do some some other work, but she's not somebody who, uh, is out there, uh, in front of the camera and ready to talk about everything and <laughs> get, get going on, on projects. So, uh, it's, she's a bit of a mystery for sure. So we'll, we'll never know until it's actually happening. Yeah, no, for sure. I hope, I hope some of the, uh, younger and, uh, today's female directors are finding her work and, uh, championing her. Much like uh, some of the 1970s cinema directors uh, championing older uh, directors' works and kind of brought the spotlight back on them. I'm thinking like uh, Lucas and Spielberg and uh, uh, Coppola with uh, Kurosawa and really shining a light. Hope some of the young, newer, fresher voices is uh, pointing that light, some of that shine right back on Elaine May and uh, bringing her back to the forefront because... I think uh, I think she has a great voice that uh, speaks a lot about what's going on now, and uh, that's one of the great things about her work. As we've you know we've worked through, she really was very forward thinking and uh, modern in all senses of the word um, for and what she made and what she created. 
Yeah, and I mean, uh, you know, she never ended up like like John Ford uh, ignored in uh, in poverty or anything like that. Um, I think people who uh, respect comedy and uh, respect filmmaking always kind of knew that uh, the the contribution that she had had given to the craft, but. Um, the large, the public at large certainly has, um, has passed her by. And, and part of that is, is the fact that she's not a crazy self promoter, uh, or, a, a workaholic at this point. Um, but a lot of it is just the, the nature of the films that she made being so hard to find for a long time and, and sort of underexposed, underpromoted. Um, and, uh, we're, we're seeing a, a shift in that and hopefully we'll, we'll get uh, heartbreak kid out there and, um, everybody will be able to see this, this full filmography in all of its glory. Um, let's, let's, uh, let's talk, uh, for a little while about this, this, um, Mike Nichols movie, because I, I think it is, uh, you know, I don't think that it's necessarily, I don't think that it fits in entirely with her work as a whole. Uh, <laughs> there's not really a, a thematic link between them, but I do think she gets off some of her, uh, style or at least um, perspective on making movies uh, in this film, and uh, I, I do think it's it's more than just uh, a novelty that she was the one behind the camera and behind the uh, the editing process on this movie, um, and you know it it doesn't for for me read as a traditional American Masters episode. Uh, I don't know how you felt about that. What do you think? Um, I, I don't have lots of, exp- I've seen a few American masters. I think the only other one that kind of springs to mind, I think was, uh, was it Mel Brooks? I recently watched one of the, the American masters on him Yeah, and, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's interesting. You know, we have four films that she's, he, she's made, um, all of them very, uh, almost either genre defining or genre defying, um, and so I was kind of maybe my hopes were going in a little too high for her yeah. to kind of really do something different with this, especially because the subject matter is so near and dear to her, being her, her uh, partner in crime for so many years. And uh, so I was kind of a little, I was a little underwhelmed. But you know, she did a fantastic job. I totally appreciate Mike Nichols and his contributions to. Uh, to art and uh made me want to watch a lot more of his movies again and think about it i had no idea mike nichols was german Mm, no idea because he's known for being american comedian like you so you go back and look at a lot of those things it's uh you know american comedian and uh you know you think of the graduate you think of uh defining a generation of uh or the generation gap as uh was kept constantly uh talked about in that um so yeah, but uh, there was some there was some nice moments that you could definitely see her shining through. Um, I well, I love... mean, just for, from the beginning, I mean, <laughs> like yeah. that that was the thing. Like I had high hopes going in, and then they they went even higher when the first shot of the episode was Hitler. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was, no. that's definitely a. Uh, an Elaine May joke. <laughs> well, and then like right at the end is uh, she's the last shot. Hitler's the first shot, and she's the last shot. 
<laughs> which was great because you know she basically pops in at the end and says uh you know people like mike nichols work uh, much like they like trash which is just hilarious yeah, you know, at yeah. his, you know roasting him at the to the very end <laughs> um no it was it was it was a, it was a well put together documentary i think i uh, i thought going in um, she would have been producing it from the beginning but it seems like uh she had someone else doing the interview process. I would have liked to have seen her do the interview process with Mike Nichols, really kind of dig in there a bit. But I think the conversations they had were, uh, you know, that Mike Nichols had with his interviewer were fantastic. And uh, the footage she assembled, and I'm sure she's the one who helped direct the uh, the talking heads uh, portions, uh, asking them questions and memories of Mike Nichols. And uh, no, it was good. It did. It, did, it didn't, you know, push the genre or the format into a new direction but it was well crafted and you can see some of her sly uh wry humor poking in uh every now and then when you know she could get it in yeah i mean i thought that the interviewing aspect of it was interesting for two reasons first of all i think she let him talk and pause and uh veer off in side of one clip much more than the typical documentary of this style. You kind of got a sense of the full scene, if you will, of what he was saying, um, as opposed to taking the most meaningful moment or, uh, you know, the like the, the real um, core quote that gets at the essence of what he was saying, um, which I think is more typical of, uh, of something like this. Um, and then the other thing was just that you don't see the um, the person who's uh, um, Julian Schlossberg. You don't see the person who's interviewing Mike Nichols until the very end. And you only hear him uh, a couple times through the documentary, really in just like one or two word uh, comments. So uh, if you're not listening closely, you don't know that it's not her who is interviewing him. And I felt like she did that intentionally where it was, I think you could easily expect that she's the one behind the camera asking him questions. Um, and, uh, it, it, it made it feel even more intimate than it already felt because I think he was, you know, he was having a conversation with somebody that he knew very well. Um, and, uh, and so I think that aspect of it was kind of an interesting, uh, sleight of hand, to a certain degree. And it was also interesting how long into the documentary uh, you went before you really heard from Elaine May at all. Um, I mean, you never hear from her in contemporary times. It's only in clips. And I think there's only maybe one or two clips of her in the whole documentary. And the only, uh, I mean, there's... The earliest thing time you hear her is is the um, the Emmys clip um, of mm-hmm. being yeah. him being awarded the uh, the most mediocre director, which was uh, very funny. <laughs> I've seen that before, um, and uh, that's pretty much the only clip of them in the of them like doing comedy in the entire documentary. Right? I mean, I don't yeah. think that. Um, because there's 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 pictures of them performing, and there's uh, there's also um, pictures of them performing in um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, 
which I had read about before as, as being especially uh, strong. Um, but the, yeah, I didn't know about that. Yeah. I didn't know about that until after the, like seeing this documentary and then going and looking that stuff up. And I, that, I, that's crazy. I had no idea that they went back and uh, played those characters uh, on Broadway. That's uh that was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, I don't think there's really even much about them meeting and sort of pairing up with each other. I mean, it's really, it goes from him being in this class and he mentions her sort of offhand as being one of the people in the class. And then all of a sudden they move to New York to um, start a comedy gig together. Um, so it, it it's interesting how, you know, pushed into the background she is. And I, I'm not saying that in the sense of like, he made this documentary all about him or she made it all about him. But I, I think, you know, she, she is this person who's intensely personal, who doesn't like giving interviews, who doesn't like being uh, the center of attention. And it seems like, I feel like if somebody else had made this documentary, there would have been more of her in the documentary somewhat oh, I, ironically. I, no, I, I agree. I agree completely. I think they would, uh, cause they were, they were a huge hit and I think they would have, they would have spent a little more time building that relationship and, uh, you know, probably E true Hollywood story. And then they dissolved, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, really kind of played that up, but no, it's, it's, you're absolutely right. She does. She does, uh, delicately and artfully, uh, put her place in the, in the history of their relationship, but does not, uh, uh you know, uh, contribute more than necessary. Um, and takes herself out until, you know, like we said, the, uh, the end, you know, at the two award show. That's basically all she yeah. does. The two award shows. Well, and the the way she does the awards in this is really interesting too. Like the fake announcements of the. Oh uh, yes. <laughs> like, I couldn't tell if she was just like razzing him, <laughs> you know, because it's so it's so corny and like, and then matching that with his discussion of like his failure being the real moments when he. Uh, moves forward and and is able to kind of do the work that he wants to do um it was uh it was just a little uh yeah it was a little funny the way she did that it was like oh look at all these awards you've won you're so great <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's uh you, you could tell she's ribbing him yeah. along the same lines but being respectful and really uh you know doing doing what she set out to do for this project Definitely. which is to show why he belongs in this pantheon of people that are should be revered in uh in the u.s so no it was great i i did i did like it and like i i think i was talking off air but uh you know it really <laughs> she succeeded because it made me want to just sit down and start pouring through his catalog of movies again and watching some of the stuff that uh he considered didn't work and you know to kind of really dig into why and uh what didn't work about it so i don't want to talk too much about this but i do want to talk about mike nichols since this documentary was about mike nichols um i guess that just watching this you know I, he's obviously an incredibly intelligent fascinating person who's had who had a a uh really remarkable life uh, a lot of which by the way they didn't necessarily cover in this documentary um he uh they didn't talk really at all about his personal life after no. uh, he moved to uh the u.s um and really after he sort of graduated high school it became entirely about his career um he was married to, to diane sawyer for uh almost 30 years um 
um, was married to a couple of other people. Um, and he also made a lot of movies that they did not cover in this documentary. It was definitely heavy on the first half of his career and not too much on the latter half of his career, including, um, the movies that he made with Elaine May, uh, Primary Colors, um, The Birdcage. Um, I, I guess just in general, I'm curious to know your thoughts on his filmography, how much of it you've seen, and or and and kind of what you think of him as a filmmaker overall. Um, I I've seen quite a few of his movies. After watching that, uh, it, it's weird. I think I watched a lot of his movies before I knew who he was. Like in my yeah. younger years, like in the '90s. Um, because, you know, all of a sudden I'm like, oh, okay, I've seen that. Oh, and I've seen that. And, uh, it was, he, but he's not, you know, besides looking, looking up his work and kind of saying, okay, uh, I should see, you know, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf and I should see this at this point. And, uh, but for the most part, his 90s stuff, I was just, uh, I was like, oh, he directed that. So like when I see the wolf and I'm like, huh, he directed (laughs) wolf, huh? Well, that wasn't very good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How am I supposed to feel about this now? Um, I know, you know, not to disparage people who like the movie Wolf, I, I did <laughs> not. Um, but yeah, uh, there's there's a there's a lot of his movies I haven't seen. Um, you know, I'm trying to I'm trying to think of some of the big ones that I haven't seen. Uh, like I haven't seen uh, Carnal Knowledge, which I know was a big one for him, and Silkwood. I remember seeing Heartburn. I've seen Biloxi Blues. I remember uh, I liked that movie a lot when I was younger, but I haven't seen it uh, recently. I had no idea he did Working Girl. Yeah, I saw that movie probably twenty times on HBO on repeat, <laughs> and I had no idea that he did Working Girl. Um, so yeah, it's uh it's interesting, you know, looking at his filmography i recently just watched charlie wilson's war it was one of those movies uh to finish my see every philip seymour hoffman movie um list and uh i had no idea it was done by him until the credits rolled and so um it's weird because you see a very strong mike nichols voice in the beginning of his career and then it kind of becomes a working yeah director voice which doesn't really shine as bright as I would think uh, his reputation has, you know? Yeah. It's not like you're like, oh, that's a Mike Nichols movie. That's a Mike Nichols movie. I mean, if you say Mike Nichols, they're going to tell you, you know, The Graduate, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and maybe Catch-22. Um, and that's about it. Most people forget about his other films that he's made. Yeah, I mean, I think um, he is a bit of a zeitgeist director. Um Many of his movies uh, are great for watching to get a sense of both the uh, era of American culture that it was made in and the era of American filmmaking that it was made in. Uh, I'm thinking particularly of The Graduate, Carnal Knowledge, Silkwood, Working Girl, The Birdcage, uh, Angels in America, Charlie Wilson's War. I think all of those films, uh, and actually Elaine May, um, 
mentions this in the documentary when she's talking about his movies. I thought it was a very insightful comment that that, that they do feel like these um, time capsules of America. And that's not to say that I think that they're dated. I, I, I don't really like that word as an insult. Um, I think there's certainly movies that that have become dated in the way that that word uh, is thrown around now. Um, but I think there's a, a, a huge value. I think it's one of the biggest values in film that we can watch movies that give us a sense of the times in which they were made. And um, I think in that regard, his movies uh, are very valuable. That being said, I, I agree with you, especially um, pretty much everything after Carnal Knowledge has very little of his uh, sort of personal stamp. Um, mm. And there's most of them are pretty bad. I mean, <laughs> I like yeah. Working Girl. Uh, I think it's a, I think it's a, a very entertaining movie. And I also think it's very insightful about the times in which it was made, both intentionally and unintentionally. But I, uh, but I mean, it's not especially well made, uh, or, um, you know, profound, uh, certainly. And, and some of his movies in the later half of his career are, are downright bad. I mean, regarding Henry, what planet are you from closer? I think those are all pretty much garbage movies. Um, don't, don't forget, don't forget Wolf. Yeah. And Wolf, I totally agree is very, very bad. Although I, I haven't seen it since it, it came out. Um, I mean, uh, I actually just recently watched Angels in America. Um, I had never seen it and, uh, I thought it was very good. I mean, I think it, it's, it didn't entirely transcend its stage bound nature, I think because he didn't want to touch the writing, which was so good. Um, yeah, but I think, yeah, I still haven't seen that yet because yeah. I was totally in my uh, I'm tired of Al Pacino phase. And... Yeah, he's not in it a ton. It's no, he, I mean... he's not he's definitely one of the big characters, but he's not. I mean, you know, he's he's yeah, he's not the central character by any stretch, but he's definitely playing Al Pacino uh, dying of AIDS in the movie. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, see that? I'm not to laugh at dying of AIDS. No, no, I, I mean, it's like, what if instead, period... of a, instead of being blind, I was dying of AIDS? What do you think? <laughs> Hoo-ha, I've got AIDS, Charlie. <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, yeah, you can. T- I can take or leave Al Pacino. Speaking of people who the second half of their career does not measure up to the first half. No, um, not at all. But, but yeah, I mean, I think it, I think it's definitely a valuable film. Um, and, and also, you know, I think that... that that play was so significant um, and important that having a, a filmed version of it is, is uh, from at least around the time that it was made was, is, is very, uh, very valuable. Um, and, and the ones that do stick out to me that I remember primary colors, the birdcage, uh, those are the ones that Elaine may help yeah. shape and write. And I think that's very significant when looking at his career. Like those are the ones that stick out to me in his later half are the ones that she helped craft the, uh, language for, which is, uh, which I think is a pretty significant thing to, uh, you know, yeah. discuss. Well, Tony Kushner and Elaine may as your screenwriters, you can do a lot worse than that. So, yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, and uh, although he collaborated with Gary Shandling, who is also a, a, an exceptional comedian and that didn't go quite as well. So, um, I mean, I think that that is, 
I think his his catalog is really a reflection of the fact that he was primarily a craftsman. Um, and what that usually means is that people who make movies like that are likely to, uh, if they're very good craftsmen, they're likely to succeed a lot of the time. But the movies in which they don't succeed are not especially interesting or worth uh, revisiting in any regard. They're just movies that simply don't work. Um, you know, whereas uh, I think people who are a little bit more on the artist side, uh, their failures are oftentimes just as interesting as their successes. Yeah, when they have they make spectacular failures. Yeah, you know, it's not just you know slights. They're spectacular. Um, yeah, and I think it's interesting because if you talk about uh, what Mike Nichols says in the documentary about how he thinks the auteur yes. theory, theory is shit, you, then you look at his he- body of work and you can almost draw a parallel to the fact that he's making efforts to not have any sort of connecting tissue between all of his work well, I at think, all. Well, I think he wanted to have his cake and eat it too a little bit in that section. I mean, he ends his auteur theory as shit theory with... But all of the decisions have to come from one mind. <laughs> I know. I and, mean, and then and earlier in the same documentary where he's saying that the auteur theory is shit, he which by the way I agree with and like I'm glad that he championed the directors that he mentioned. They all made great films yes. and deserve to be venerated just as much as Howard Hawks. But the like he also said earlier that every movie that he's made is a reflection of his. Uh, autobiographical life at that point that he was making the movie so it's not really clear it it seems to me like that was a defensive stance of looking at his own career and saying okay I recognize that all of these movies don't have necessarily connective tissue but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's of less value than people who have that thematic through line Um, but at the same time he still wanted to be considered the author of those movies no for sure yeah but he you know but he also making sure that uh the writers got the credit as well like he i think he's yeah i think he is a director that appreciates a good writer and he knows it and so you know he talks about it a few times throughout the documentary about how important that relationship is and a good Um, actor too i mean i think even the movies that he made that didn't work were with people who are interesting um, and you know, he was looking for, he wanted to work with the best people. And for the most part through, throughout his career, he did work with some of the great actors and actresses of his generation. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just a, a case where I think that, um, that he, he's stretching for something that, he doesn't necessarily want to get to. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, I think it's a uh, it's 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 nice in which uh, we kind of were able to kind of look at him. I mean, she focuses him on him mainly as not an artist, but just as a, a thinker, someone who is working on uh, revisioning and giving a, a new lens to some of these uh, like plays that were coming out at the time, and then these yeah. early movies. And then fashioning him into, like you said, uh, someone who is uh, encapsulating a, a time period for each like part part of the generation. Um, so 
that is a you know that's a that's a nice point and that's an I think that's why we don't get a lot of his personal life because it's not important to what she's considering because she's also a very uh, you know personal just shouldn't play into what's going on on the screen and after having so many of her movies taken away from her for personal reasons uh, not business reasons not financial reasons especially when you consider the fact that uh, you know a lot of it was just due to distrust or maybe even well she's a girl she can't handle the thing we're going to take it away and make it our way or um, you know whatever reasons that had I'm sure she took it personally when she sees her colleagues running around you know making uh catch 22 it being a failure and then just getting another movie right off the bat right um you know while she's struggling to get the next one i'm sure she wants to make sure that you know this is about what we do uh behind the camera and not what we do when we're at home behind our doors yeah well uh, but i also think i mean i i definitely uh, you know we've talked a lot about the gender dynamic in in elaine may's career and i think that that's a very real thing um but I also thought it was very interesting to contrast his experience on um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf with the experience that Elaine May had on A New Leaf where he got fired after the movie was done and uh, Warner just wanted to edit the movie and mix the movie themselves. Um, and uh instead of you know suing them or hiding the film under his bed or any of those kinds of things he uh made a deal with them where he got them something that they wanted you know it, to me that you contrast that with what Elaine May did like it's very clear that he was somebody that knew exactly how to play the game he knew when to say no and hold firm when he could get his way and he knew when to find some bargaining chip to use um to get what he wanted uh if if a no wasn't going to cut it um and so i i think i i think the lesson of that is that you know if you are somebody uh who's a woman or a person of color you have you know there's there's people who are uh, white guys that can get away with the things that you want to do um, that are going to get away with it and get to make m movies more. Um, but you have to be perfect. But then yeah. at the same time, like there is a way to play that game and get what you want. And uh, it, you know, th there's, there's also like, it's, it's not entirely on, the people who are um, shutting her out of this process. Like she was somebody who didn't give a fuck and wanted to get her way. And she paid the price for that. Whereas Mike Nichols was somebody who looked at the situation and said, I know how to play this game. I'm going to win. Yeah, I, I, I can, I can definitely see that. That's a, that's a, that's a valid point, but I also kind of wonder sometimes, you know, uh, are the rules the same for this game? So, or are they even invited to play this game? Yeah. You know, when we're talking about, uh, people of color directing or, or women directing. Cause I know that like, uh, in my experience when, you know, working on films or working on TV, when there is a, uh, female director that's brought on board or a female AD or producer, uh, a lot of times it, they've had to work twice as hard to get to that position 
to be able to, uh, you know, be comfortable and not even ever comfortable because they're still always fighting to justify what they do. Um, and so I wonder if it's a Elaine May didn't want to play the game because she knew that there was no way of winning their game by their rules. So just kind of like do her own way because otherwise there's no chance. Whereas Mike Nichols is the uh, poster boy for, you know, the gentleman's club. Oh yeah. Sure. Yeah. He'll, he'll fit right in. Look at him. He knows where to like, you know, whip his dick out and he knows when to tuck it back in his pants and, uh, you know, Taken on the chin. Right. Oh, that's a weird analogy. It sounded really gross. <laughs> that was, a, that was an awkward mixed metaphor. So. I'm sorry for my words, people. Um, no, no, I think but, you're right. Uh, and the other thing is that, like, I mean, um, we don't know what went on behind the scenes yeah. uh, before Elaine May sued Paramount over New Leaf. I mean, there's a there's there's a very good chance that she, before she did that, went begging to them or went hat in hand and offered them up something uh you know, we don't know that she had a hard line the entire time. The other thing is that Mike Nichols obviously had established uh, before the shoot with this guy, I am the director here, I'm making these decisions. And so, whereas with, with Elaine May, she didn't know the person that she was interacting with because they had changed regimes in the middle of making the mm-hmm. movie. So she didn't have that relationship, even if it had been a good relationship prior to, to shooting. She didn't she didn't get to um, negotiate with the person who hired her to direct the movie. Yeah, she didn't um, get to exploit the relationship a little bit yeah, to her, yeah. her benefit. That's funny, uh, you know, you brought that up. Uh, I watched that uh, There's on YouTube. There's a film comment-sponsored uh, uh, interview series, and uh, they do Mike Nichols interviewing Elaine May for a screening of Ishtar. I think it was a general overall like weekend of Elaine May movies uh, yeah. at uh, in New York, and uh, so but they were mainly there to talk about Ishtar, and uh, she pointed out that every one of her movies there was a regime change in the middle of making her movie, right? Except so for she, Heartbreak she, Kid, the only one that, yeah. that they didn't touch. Yep. Yeah, and so there was always something like standing in the way or screwing up the timing of whatever it is that she was doing. So. Uh, you know, that's just, that's just shit luck as well. Yeah. But, uh, well, but it just yeah. shows you again, like those are the kinds of things that people point to and say, look, it's not because she was a woman that, you know, it's bad luck. It's uh, bad timing. It's, um, all these other things. She wouldn't play the game. Right. Um, but the, the point is not that, that everything that, 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 you know, broke bad for her was because she was a woman. The point is that in order to succeed in this industry as a woman, it needs to be perfect. There, yep. You can't have those bad luck things happen to you. And because those bad luck things happen to every director. And, uh, you know, you have to be able to uh, look at those, like Mike Nichols says in this documentary, I mean, every t- every day he shows up on the set and he's like, how... This is a I, we've constructed a perfect corner, which I thought was a really good uh, way yeah. of putting it. Then um, there's no way out of this corner, and that that happens to you both on set and as as you know um, firsthand, um, and it happens to you uh, in post and in marketing mm-hmm. and in post release and in media. I mean, and in life, yeah, yeah, <laughs> for sure. Um, 
So, so I think, you know, that's, that's the thing to keep in mind when you're, uh, when you're thinking about this career and, and sort of the things that, that couldn't, that didn't go right or that, uh, that she could have done better or any of these things that, you know, I mean, I think it, you, it, it's important to always keep the larger picture in mind. Nope. Um, speaking of sure. the larger picture, uh, let's talk a little bit about, uh, Elaine May and the rest of her, uh, career. Cause I, I think we've, we've touched on all of the, uh, the Mike Nicholsy Mike Nichols things, unless there's anything oh, yes. else uh, you wanted to talk about for this. No, that's enough Mike Nichols. I think that's <laughs> a, a, a proper amount of Nichols. <laughs> that's going to be like his, uh, documentary. Ne- it's like his, his next comedy album, a proper amount of Nichols. <laughs> Um, that comedy album would be very quiet now. Um, um, yeah, I mean, I, well, I guess the first thing we should talk about is just like the other Elaine May things. I mean, uh, have you, did you watch, uh, Heaven Can Wait, uh, the, the Warren Beatty movie? I have seen Heaven Can Wait and I remember it very well. Yeah. Uh, that was one of those HBO staples I saw a bunch of times. And in fact, it's on HBO right now. Um, oh, that's hilarious. So, uh, yeah, if people do want to watch it, she uh, got a co screenwriting credit with Warren Beatty. Uh, and it's directed by Buck Henry, uh, who's a similarly awesome, uh, somewhat forgotten comedian. Um, and, and fantastic writer. And, fantastic uh, and, writer. and co directed by Warren Beatty, because he oh, can't keep his goddamn name off of anything. No. <laughs> he's, he's very much uh, about Warren Beatty. Yeah. Uh, big time. Uh, yeah, Buck Henry, he was also good friends with Mike Nichols. They worked together a bunch, and uh, Buck Henry did a lot of uh, great writing for some early Saturday Night Live bits and The Graduate, and he's uh, he's all over the place. So, uh, yeah, no, he's a fantastic writer. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I think it's uh, it, people should ch- check it out for sure uh, in sort of the Elaine May catalog. There are some really Elaine May moments. I think most of them come from the Charles Grodin Diane Cannon interactions, mm-hmm. which are amazing, and both of them are super awesome, and I love them. Um, but uh, but it, it is very much a Warren Beatty movie, um, and uh, you know, it's 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 all all about. Warren Beatty being Warren Beatty for the most part. Well, and that's, uh, you know, and that's, he, he, you know, uh, took that, uh, her role in that, in the success of that movie and brought her right into his next movie, Reds, which he directed, um, Elaine May co-wrote with him and probably, I can't remember who else was attached to the writing of that, but that is also a very, a very, uh, uh, Warren Beatty-centric oh, yeah. film, even though the best part about that movie is Diane Keaton and Jack Nicholson. Yeah. <laughs> They're definitely... Well, that tends to happen in film. Warren Beatty movies, doesn't it? The best part yeah. of them tends to be whoever else is in it. You know, with the exception of Ishtar. He steals that's the true. show in that's that one true. rightfully. Yeah. Um, but no, that's, you know, that's the thing. You know, He's the Warren Beatty type making Warren Beatty movies with Warren Beatty as the Warren Beatty. I'm going to try to fit Warren Beatty more in the Warren Beatty, <laughs> Warren Beatty. Um, but yeah, no, and that's 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 his whole deal. And you could tell that uh, that's probably what kind of uh, pushed uh, from that position uh, the same kind of uh, deal that she got and moving over to help with... Uh, with Tootsie yeah. uh, to punch that one up and probably bring a lot of the uh, 
gender politics a little more even-handed in uh, that film, even though I'm not a big fan of that movie. Yeah, and there's probably um, a significant number of movies that Elaine May worked on that we will never be aware that she worked on. Mm -hmm. Um, I think she was, you know, one of the major script doctors uh, in the 80s and uh, early 90s. And so, I, you know, I mean, for example, uh, most people don't know that she wrote Dangerous Minds uh, with Michelle yes. Pfeiffer. Um, mm-hmm. So, I, you know, she she used, um, you know, she got, it was mostly uncredited stuff, but she used some pseudonyms for things, many of which maybe we don't even, aren't even aware of. Uh, she, she wrote a late Otto Preminger movie called Such Good Friends under the name Esther Dale. Um and uh, some people have said she uh, co-wrote and sort of directed uh, In the Spirit, um, which was uh, a film made in 1990 starring uh, Jeannie Berlin uh, and, co- and written, co-written by uh, Jeannie Berlin, her daughter who starred in um, The Heartbreak Kid. Um, so, you know, she's, uh, she's done a lot of these little things through her career that... Um, some of which I think it's kind of widely known, things like Reds and Tootsie and other things yeah. that uh, we, may, we may never hear about uh, the, her contributions to. Labyrinth was the other yes, one that Labyrinth. I was surprised that's to right. hear that yeah. she was involved in because that's a seminal favorite and a lot of people uh, love that movie. Oh, yeah, it's one of my wife's that, favorite movies, actually. Yeah, the fact that Terry Jones uh, you know, tapped her, because I'm sure you get to a certain point in that film and you know he's probably say all right i need a female perspective on this before it becomes a weirdo uh beauty you know <laughs> can't weird, be a hundred percent david bowie's yeah cod piece you so. know <laughs> we need more cut we need more pants bulge but we needs more bulge <laughs> now bring the 13 year old girl in here this isn't weird right uh, let's get someone let's get a different perspective in here <laughs> so i'm sure I'm sure she was brought in once again to kind of help even that keel quite off, uh, quite a bit. Um, and then after that, you know, she got that one more, one more stab at directing with Ishtar. Uh, you had the In the Spirit, and then she worked a bunch with Mike Nichols on some things, and then with Woody Allen on some things. Yeah, she she was in um, Small Time Crooks. Uh, she plays his wife. Um, it's a a very bad Woody Allen movie. <laughs> yeah. But... Uh, she's I just, passably you know funny in it, though. She's the only thing I remember about that movie. Yeah. Like, I honestly, that and uh, I think uh, Michael Rappaport had a couple of funny lines that he keeps on repeating. But uh, I just remember her character, and she, she stood out very quickly to me. And this is before I really kind of knew who Elaine yeah. was. So She's also, um, she's also in a, a very bad movie from the late 70s called California Suite, which is basically like a... Um, uh, it's like a grand hotel, but with late uh, 70s yes. comedians. Um, and uh, it was it was actually written by Neil Simon and directed by uh, Herbert Ross, who uh, has been getting a little bit of a, a renaissance recently. He, he did uh, Goodbye Girl, Steel Magnolias. Uh, oh, okay. uh, he made um, Pennies from Heaven, which is a, a very weird, uh, wonderful musical that i just uh watched recently uh he also made footloose um so he you know he was around for a while um he uh and it's it uh he she actually plays 
um, the wife of Walter Matthau, who uh, is on a business trip, or no, he, he gets uh, to the hotel a night early um, for a bar mitzvah that they're going to, and he uh, unknowingly uh, sleeps with a prostitute. Um, I mean, he knowingly sleeps with her, but he doesn't know that she's a prostitute. And she uh, drinks too much and passes out in his bed, and he finds her in the morning and is unable to wake her up, and Elaine May is arriving uh, that morning, and so he has to figure out some way to get her out of the room without his wife finding out. Um, it's basically a skit that goes on yeah, for that sounds, too long. That... Um, and Walter Matthau is basically like, it's the most energy I've ever seen from Walter Matthau. He's just, he's, he's just <laughs> leaping off of the walls. He's playing it. He's overplaying it to death. I mean, it's just like, it's, it's, it's like a Robin Williams performance, um, from Walter oh, Matthau. Wow. So it's kind of weird, weird, uh, in that regard. Elaine May has the funniest line in the whole movie, which I won't give away in case anybody <laughs> wants to fast forward to, uh, that s- sequence. But, um, it's, uh, uh, it's yeah. I mean, it's it's worth seeing her her little bit, which doesn't come until like an hour into the movie, unfortunately. Uh, yeah. And and you also have to watch Bill Cosby, so trigger warning there. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I mean, it's 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 kind of funny to see something like that and think about her reasoning behind being in the movie. I mean, obviously she knew Neil Simon, she knew Walter Matthau, so um, but, you know, it kind of makes sense from that in that regard. But. Mm-hmm. She's made so few things, both in acting and directing, that, uh, and, and her acting roles in particular are kind of so random that, uh, you know, the, the, the reasoning behind it is entirely hidden. Um, and she gives so few interviews that it's, it's impossible to kind of know why she decided to be in California Suite in 1978 or, or in yeah. Small Time Crooks in, in 2000. Now, yeah, they both seem like uh, helping a friend, yeah, like that. That's <laughs> all. I I do I do appreciate going through. Uh, I I wonder when I see these types of names, I wonder if she was able to say, "Can I name my own character?" Because then she has like Candy Carter, she has uh, Millie Michaels. Oh yeah, Marianne Marianne Flan. Well, and she plays May in Small Time Crooks, right? That's her and name. then the next Woody Allen show movie she's in, she plays Kay. Yeah, because you know. <laughs> Can we just call you May again? Oh, I was May last time. How about I'm K? Is that better? <laughs> oh, that'll work. That'll work just fine. Oh man, yeah, it's a. Uh, she's. I'm thankful that she has had a career that has continued on, um, but I don't think she has the career she deserves. Yeah. that's for sure. Um, she was recognized uh, a couple years ago by uh, Obama. Uh, she received the Medal of Arts Award, the Presidential Medal of Arts Award, which I thought is nice that, uh, yeah. you know. And then uh, the Writers Guild of America uh, bestowed upon her the uh, Laurel Award for Screenwriting Achievement uh, 2016. So it's it's nice to see her getting the recognition she deserves. It's just a shame that uh, she was soured so heavily from the directing process because I really think 
especially right now in this time and place, she would have a fantastic idea of uh, what kind of story to tell. Yeah, um, and Richard Brody made a, a great suggestion for her as well, which is uh, to write her memoirs, which uh, I'm sure she will promptly ignore uh, mm-hmm. because she's not that kind of a person. Um, although I would also take a fake memoir, Elaine May. You, you're welcome uh-huh. to lie through the whole thing. That's totally that fine. Absolutely hilarious. (laughs) Um, Completely fictitious. Yeah. Um, But I would also settle just for um, a critical analysis of her work, uh, a biography by somebody else. Uh, Let's get something out there because there's very little writing um, that that uh, that is available um, on her films. And and they're they're uh, as we've hopefully shown over these episodes, they're ripe for dissection and discussion. Um, I agree. I think I think there needs to be more written about her and about the time and place and what the movies were saying and doing at that time for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, maybe maybe the complete press and we can uh, start writing books. Yeah. Our, yeah. Exactly. It's coming, <laughs> with all that coming free time soon. we have. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and free money. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, the, a few other things I definitely think people should check out um, on YouTube. Um, the uh, Mike Nichols and Elaine May beer commercials from the 60s uh, are amazing. And uh, uh, they're basically cartoons and they do the voices. And uh, they're so funny. And uh, I highly recommend them. So definitely check the search those out. Um, she, I would also recommend watching the entire uh, speech that she gives uh, about Mike Nichols at the, I think it was the Kennedy Honors Mm-hmm. Um, it's really funny and she's got some jokes in there that I think, uh, are sort of all timer jokes that she just tosses off in this like random speech that she gave. Um, she's just so smart and, uh, so sophisticated in her comedy that uh, it's, there's very few people I think in modern comedy history that can touch her when it comes to, to writing a joke. Um, so, so definitely seek those out if you're looking for more Elaine May. Um, is there anything else that you have encountered through this process that you think people should check out? There's so little out um, there, unfortunately. I mean, just supplemental stuff like uh, the Nichols and May. They have lots of uh, televised performances of some of their most famous routines yeah. uh, on YouTube. Those they're they're really funny they're really biting and uh, quick and uh, you know very funny um so definitely check those out and uh yeah i mean that besides the that that big interview series they did together um there's very few sit-down interviews with her um not a lot of tv appearances about her work or about herself so is uh you know we i welcome listeners if they found anything that uh we might have missed to uh kind of point it out to us because uh i'd be interested to learn much more about uh elaine may for sure any final thoughts on kind of her career as a whole what do you think the i i kind of have a sense of what i feel like the through line of her films is but i'm, I'm curious to hear how you feel about it. Um, if you feel like there, there is connective tissue through all four of her movies and sort of what you, what your kind of takeaways about her as a filmmaker are. Um, I would say the thing that I picked up from watching her entire filmography, 
Um, and I, I do preface that all of these were my first, all of these were my first time watching, uh, these films. I, uh, for those who didn't are listening to the supplement episode and not the first episode of this show for some odd reason, <laughs> uh, I went into this completely cold. I, I remember seeing parts of Heartbreak Kid, but I once again I confused it. I think with the movie The Coca Cola Kid or The Flamingo Kid, all movies that were out around the same time, um, and on HBO that is. And uh, so in a first viewing, and I would, and I'm totally all these movies. I'm going to go back and watch again. Um, a matter of fact, I can't wait to show people Ishtar so they can actually see the movie because I think it's worth worth showcasing that film around i'm psyched about them uh mikey and nikki coming to criterion that'll shine a bigger spotlight on her the new leaf presentation that was put out by uh, olive signature is fantastic and loaded with special features um with uh analysis about that film which I, is, is very appreciated and then of course yeah, that's you know, great Oh, the essay is great, and, and it includes the short story that she yeah. based the book off of. Anywho, um, the through line that I'm seeing is that she is fascinated with what makes uh, what makes men work. She's fascinated with men and their processes of deciding what is important for them in their lives. Um, so, and pointing out how. Uh, sometimes disturbing it can be, sometimes how sad it can be, and how funny it can be at the same time. So she's really looking at uh, arrested development, the lack of maturity in the adult male, and in their uh, what their goals and what their achievements are. If you look at the New Leaf, you have a arrested, uh, you know, uh, a man unwilling to grow up and to take responsibilities and to nurture anything except his own hobbies and putting him in a situation where he has to uh, force himself to grow or change um, followed by the heartbreak kid uh, this idea of being married and having you know being married to someone and being in love and being romantic to only find out that that is a fleeting thing that is not uh, something that I think he'll be going through relationship to relationship with for the rest of his life because there's something with him and not with the girls that he is uh, falling for um mikey and nikki two guys who are completely stuck in the past and their uh childhood relationship never developing and growing beyond the point uh that they're still at when we leave that film and then uh ishtar two men who can't get you know can't get out of their garage band phase of their life and I think she finds that sort of thing fascinating. And through that, she's also uh, creating uh, fantastic women characters that might not necessarily be in the spotlight, much like she doesn't like to be in the spotlight, but are real, grounded, um, fully developed. um, But they just don't have that bravado and uh, uh, flamboyancy as the uh, men she puts in her film. So... I would say that that's the major through line for me is her fascination with uh, arrested development in the male process. And if you go and look at her other few scripts, um, there's lots of touches of that in Heaven Can Wait, uh, definitely in Primary Colors, and um, as well as uh, 
uh, some of the some of the ideas and some of the barbs in uh, the movie Reds. Uh, you can definitely see some of that coming through. Tootsie as well. As well. Tootsie, yes, that was the other one. That was definitely another one yeah. that uh, she. But uh, how about yourself? What what is your what is your takeaway from uh, this viewing? Yeah, I totally agree. I think that that is the the clear through line of of the films that she made um and i think it's interesting that you know after <laughs> after the kubrick season we were like ah oh, so much so much toxic masculinity <laughs> we got to we got to find a a director a female director <laughs> yeah um, let's find someone that'll help us uh we'll find a comedic and a female director right. oh, this is gonna be great yeah don't you think um she would make like a great stanley kubrick biography biopic <laughs> oh yeah oh my god that's brilliant there that's her project elaine <laughs> may make a biopic about stanley kubrick because i think that would be phenomenal i mean you're I... absolutely right <laughs> um <laughs> she she's been putting that guy's life on yeah film. yeah and and sort of i mean i think you know kubrick was self-aware enough uh to a certain degree that to to know what he was doing and, and to sort of reflect his own um masculine perspective uh in the um foibles of his characters um but like he just did it anyway to a little bit mm-hmm. and she tilted it. I mean, he, he used it, um, it, it as comedy in a circular fashion and I, uh, just sort of that it perpetuates itself. And, and, uh, you know, that's, that's the nature of, of humanity or of at least male humanity. Um, I think Elaine may, uh, used it, um, used it it to to present comedy in a in a much more sharp fashion yeah Um, let's say a pointed stick instead of a yeah exactly and i think um i don't necessarily think she had you know grand design on getting people to uh to recognize themselves in some sort of way that uh that would change them or uh you know as as uh mike nichols oh no it wasn't mike nichols actually i was confusing it with another documentary i watched last night i watched um uh, my journey through French cinema. And he said that, oh, nice. um, Renoir said that, uh, you, you should make a movie, um, with the, with the confidence that it will change the world. Um, but at the same time, be humble enough to, uh, hope that, or, or to feel that if it moves two people, then you've done, uh, all you could. Um, uh, which, by the way, is a very masculine thing to say. <laughs> oh, of course. Um, but uh, but I think um, I think that you know she never made a movie with the perception that she was going to change the world, uh, unlike Kubrick. Uh, and I, I think instead uh, she was she was definitely um, si- simply interested in getting the the line in, hitting the the right note for her material. I think her ambition was all in making what she presented as good as it possibly could, as opposed to, um, putting it out there into the world and making people sit up and think, or even really laugh necessarily. Um, I think it was all about the, the material. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, I think that that's a, uh, something that, 
filmmakers, I think it's a very valuable lesson because I think a lot of people go for the flash, uh, especially early in their career and want to make the best movie of all time or anything like that. And I think the way that you truly do films like these four movies that, um, that last and that still have something to give you, uh, 30 and 40 and 50 years later, um, is that you make the best goddamn movie that you can, uh, that stays true to, uh, the material that you are presenting as opposed to trying to build that material up into something that it's not. So I think that from a crafting perspective is, is the lesson that, that I take away from, from her films. Um, and, uh, and also, uh, you know, as a guy, just take a look at yourself and the way that you treat people, the way that you treat women and the way that you think about your place in the world and, and how, uh, how that can inform the rest of your life. That's, that's a uh, well, well said, well spoken. Elaine May is definitely a mirror that we can all, uh, take a moment to look at and see, uh, what she's trying to uh, show us for sure. Um, so where would you, uh, where's your final, I know we did this the other day, but final rankings one more time uh, for those who uh who didn't listen to the last 10 minutes of uh, ishtar <laughs> well i don't really consider the mike nichols film to be truly a, a film um but mm-hmm. so i mean but if i am ranking it it would go at the bottom um yep and then ishtar which is not to say that it's a bad movie i think it's a very very strong comedy uh, i just don't think it's it's as exceptional as the other three films um, Mikey and Nikki keeps growing in estimation for me, the more, the further away from my viewing I get, I think about it more. Um, I'm really excited to revisit it on a beautiful Blu-ray edition of it, um, and see how that impacts my experience. Um, so that could leap over my number two, but right now it's my number three. Uh, my number two is a new leaf, which I think is, uh, the kind of movie that a any other comedic filmmaker would be proud to have as the best movie that they ever made, and uh, and my number one is uh, a heartbreak kid. Every year I uh, make a top one hundred movies just purely to kind of get my gut check on like what my favorite movies are, or sort of where my how my taste has evolved um, over the over the year. Um, and uh, this will be extremely high on the list uh, this the, this time around in the next month or two when I make that list. Uh, I think it's so funny. I uh, linked to the YouTube uh, uh, copy of it uh, for a friend uh, yesterday and ended up watching about 15 minutes of it and <laughs> laughing my ass off. Uh, every moment of that movie is perfect and I love it and it's amazing and everybody should see it. <laughs> it is one of the greatest American comedies of all time. I agree. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm right there with you with that list. Uh, I have the same exact rankings, the same exact l- listing. And yes, uh, at first I, I think I was uh, turned off by Mikey and Nikki because I was expecting something more along the lines of the last two films we had watched. But 
it is the one that is uh, staying with me and I think about quite often little moments, little scenes, uh, Cassavetti's performance, which at first seems so uh, just childish, but then you see that he's really uh, orchestrating a lot of the things that are going on uh, for his benefit. It's, it's, it is a really fascinating film and I'm looking forward to digging into the new criterion of it to get uh, a lot of the supplemental things that will help uh, really help me uh, just connect even further with the film. And then, yeah, New Leaf is awesome. It's fantastic. There's still I, I so many lines in that movie. I think I repeated earlier uh, Walter Matthau's uh, comment about uh, the sexual obsession this woman has with her uh, rug. <laughs> I said that the other day on set to someone and uh, got a good laugh out of it. And I don't think they even knew what I was talking about. <laughs> but uh, And then, yeah, Heartbreak Kid. Man, that movie is just fantastic. I was thinking about the... Uh, the other day, the, uh, the his awkward routine, getting cleaning up his stuff from the beach to go see his <laughs> wife, who uh, is kind of like looming over that. I was thinking about that again, and I was thinking like, what like that performance that Grodin's putting on, it it remind like it reminded me of something, and then it, I started to think about it, and it reminded me of like uh, how uh, how uh, oh I'm, damn it now of course because I'm talking about it Steve Martin. It reminded me of like a Steve Martin type performance of comedy of kind of like awkwardness of that yeah. trying to impress someone. And then I started thinking, well, what came first, Grodin or Martin? And <laughs> I think Grodin came yeah. first in that performance. And so I wonder if that's kind of like where, you know, that whole that whole st- style of uh, that that awkward. Oh, yeah, man, it's so well, good. Steve Martin He's has amazing. said he I mean, he there's a direct line from. Elaine May and Mike Nichols to Steve Martin's comedy. I mean, it's yeah. very clear that that they influenced him and and really influenced most of that generation of sort of more intellectual uh, comedians yep. uh, in the seventies and eighties. Um, uh... So yeah, I mean, but yeah, it's it's Groden in that film is he can't be touched. Yeah, we'll see now. And now I have to uh, now I have to start tracking down more Grodin movies yeah. because just the simple fact that I, you know you can't get the heartbreak kid so you're going to have to try Gotta to watch Beethoven work. Exactly. well Beethoven oh what was that I, I was just listening to uh, uh, Just the Discs uh, the other day uh, Brian Sauer um, and he was talking about uh, this uh, Charles Grodin uh, Jim Belushi movie I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head right now but he was playing clips from it and Charles Gro- uh, there's a part where Charles Grodin uh, Jim Belushi steals Charles Grodin's identity and uh, works his way into this like you know his business and everything and Charles Grodin at some point says you slept with this girl and he's like yeah he goes how was I he goes you were great he goes I knew I could be great <laughs> And the way Grodin delivers this line, it's just an audio clip, and I was dying listening to it in the car. It's, uh, it's taking Gr- care of business. I've, oh, I I totally go. forgot about that movie and have seen it. Um, yeah, it, but I saw it a really, really long time ago. Um, yeah, that's really funny. Yeah, it's uh, it was it was a nice bit of serendipity, like us having that Grodin love fest, and then uh, turning over to that uh, to his podcast and hearing kind of the same thing. So, shout out to you, Brian. That's some fantastic. Oh no, my phone. My phone. <laughs> I guess that. Uh, I guess that's uh. Oh, damn it.
recording in the daytime. <laughs> we should we should end uh, we should end every episode <laughs> with the phone ringing and being like, I gotta take this. I gotta take this. This marks our time. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so uh, yeah, good shout out to Brian Sauer and his uh, his many podcasts that he's a part of because he's constantly uh, showcasing yeah new things. Yeah, that, that guy's seen a everything. Um, yeah, it's uh, yeah, he's Groden is 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 a gift that that keeps on giving for sure. Um, yeah, I, I on on the Mikey and Nikki supplements uh, topic, I I really hope that Criterion begged Elaine May the appropriate amount to uh, get on camera and talk about the film because uh, mm. they were ob- you know they were obviously involved with with uh, with the transfer with her. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's just a, a bummer that, that they didn't succeed in convincing her to do that. Uh, yeah. I'm sure she's pretty guarded, but, uh, you know, uh, hopefully they got some, some good people talking about it and yeah, I'm looking, I'm looking yeah. forward to it. I'm looking forward to it. Um, so yeah, so that's it, man. That is, Whoa. that is the end of season two and, uh, we will, uh, we'll be back with a, a longer uh, season three, um, but also tragically uh, too short uh, for different mm. reasons um, in the in the coming months. But um, do you have any uh, any final words for uh, Elaine May's uh, season of the complete? I say uh, if you haven't seen her and you're sitting on the fence wondering why you should see her. Just go out and watch her movies. Even give Ishtar the break it deserves. As she said, if uh, as many people that hated Ishtar saw Ishtar, she would be a rich woman yes, today. Yes, don't skip Ishtar. Yeah. Don't, if you skip Do the not. Ishtar episode, watch Ishtar because it's better than you think it is. It is way better than you think it is. I was pleasantly surprised i i was guffawing laughing like just really loud peals of laughter at watching if you like if you don't like warren Beatty and that's why you're staying away from this movie watch it because you get to look at see him as an ineffectual jerk that has no rhythm and it's absolutely hilarious watching him his performance is just revelatory in terms of like what he could have done if he wasn't so concerned with being warren Beatty. And if you don't like camels and that's why you're staying away, watch it. The camel's great in it. The camel is fantastic. If you don't like the desert, it's also fantastic. (laughs) Very strong desert. (laughs) Very Very strong strong. desert. (laughs) I think think (laughs) it got nominated for a desert award. The the parched and arid (laughs) award. Um, No, that's it. Um, Yeah. Uh, We'll, uh, yeah, like Matt said, we'll talk to you guys uh, later about uh, our new our new endeavor and uh what do you say matt you good i'm good i'm done i'm complete all right that's with that we're complete